People want to be valued members of a winning team on an inspired mission. And what humor does is it makes people feel valued. Hi, and welcome to the new Rules of Business by Chief. I'm Lindsay Kaplan. And I'm Carolyn Childers. And we're the co-founders of Chief, the network of the most powerful women in business. Each episode, we zero in on a complex topic that we know executives are confronting every day. And Carolyn, today we're getting into a question I ask you every day. Do you think I'm funny? (laughs) Yes, you are very funny. So I guess that's it, right? The episode's over? All right. Very funny. (laughs) So you and I have been excited about this episode in part because we love to laugh together. It's very true. Humor is what brought us together from the beginning. And I think we work better when we're cracking each other up. Yeah. Like many of the topics we've covered this season, it's a deceptive one. Humor seems light, but it should be taken seriously. It can be such a powerful tool in business. And it can have a big impact on how your team works. But how do you make sure you're using it to bring people together and not to workshop your stand-up routine? Should we just leave comedy out of the office entirely? The horror. No, luckily (laughs) today we have a pair of experts to walk us through how to harness and navigate humor in the workplace. We have Jennifer Ocker and Naomi Bagdonis, the co-authors of the incredible book, Humor Seriously. They also teach an incredibly popular course at Stanford Business School called Humor Serious Business. We ask them how humor can be an asset in business and how it can be perceived differently for women than for men. Also, spoiler alert, Lindsay finally admits that I'm funny. Mm, We'll see about that. Jennifer Ocker and Naomi Bagdonas, thank you so much for joining us to talk about our favorite topic humor, being funny, and all things laughter. Thank you for having us. We love being here. We're huge fans of what you've created. I have to say, like, there's some pressure on this conversation. I feel like I have to be funny. Like, no. (laughs) Do you get that a lot? Do you feel like because you literally wrote the book on humor, people show up and try to impress you with jokes? Every now and then. But then we disabuse them from that immediately because it's not about being funny. And then all of a sudden, Tension is diffused and everything shifts. Well, I'd love to know about your backgrounds, how you came to work together, and what drew you both to the study of humor. Okay, great. So I will go first. I'm a behavioral scientist, and a lot of the work that I focus on is how meaning and purpose shape the choices people make, how time can be spent in meaningful and sometimes unconventional ways. And how technologies like artificial intelligence and mixed reality are redefining human interaction. You know, funny stuff. (laughs) Very funny. (laughs) Yes. This is Naomi. I'm a corporate strategist, and I've spent my career straddling the worlds of business and improv comedy, which was a very wide straddle, and essentially (laughs) leading a double life where by day I was facilitating workshops and offsites for groups of executives, board retreats, things like that. And then on my nights and weekends, I was doing improv comedy. Tell us the story of how you two came together. Do you have a meet cute? 
Yeah, we cr- <laughs> we passed on a on a train and our fingers brushed each other and we both just felt electricity and it was like, oh my gosh, should we? Oh my gosh, you're humorous. Should we spend the next decade just doing research together? And I wonder how many people like when they do it, like a little project, like we started off said, and now we will do work together for ever. A decade. Yes, that's right. So I originally (laughs) asked Naomi to do a guest lecture. My class, it was on power of story. And at the task at hand was really, how do you integrate story with data? And all I remember is that the students for an hour and a half were laughing nonstop. Again, this was highly quantitative. And I was sort of taking notes, shocked that she was getting this much sort of engagement from the students. There was really something about the way she used humor to communicate sophisticated, very serious topics that made it easier to learn and remember. And I remember at that point going, dang, you know, is humor this secret weapon that teachers and faculty and, you know, leaders are not using in order to persuade? And that led me to ask her if she wanted to do a second class. And then we actually created a course and then two sections of the course. And then fast forward, we're with you here today after writing a book on it. Love it. So I'd love to take a step back and ask kind of a big question, but it feels really important. How would you define humor? So the first thing to know is that humor is not the same thing as being funny. So that's it's wildly important. And one of the reasons is because when the bar is like to be funny or to crack a joke, people often go astray and they become less humorous. There's nothing worse than someone trying to be funny. So the second thing to know is that truth lies at the heart of all humor. So instead of you're asking yourself, what is funny? Start by asking what is true. You know, we talk about with our students the difference between levity, humor, and comedy. So we talk about levity as a mindset. It's sort of this inherent state of receptiveness to and active seeking of joy in our lives. So that's levity. And then humor, one step up, if you think of this as sort of a pyramid and levity is the base, one step up, humor is a bit more intentional. It channels levity just as exercise, for example, channels movement towards a specific goal. So you can hone your sense of humor. It requires some skill and a bit of effort. So that's humor. And then comedy is the practice of humor as a structured discipline. So again, you can think of it like sports. So we've got movement, exercise, and sports, just like we've got levity, humor, and comedy. Now, we don't want everyone to be a professional athlete. We don't want everyone in our class to become a professional comedian. But what we do in the class is we look at the moves that professionals are making. So we break down some of the craft of comedy so that they can use humor more adeptly. And most importantly, we just want them to make this mindset shift. So we talk about navigating your life on the precipice of a smile. And if after 10 weeks, you don't have a single joke to tell at a cocktail party, but throughout the day, you find five more reasons to smile, then that is winning. But if you don't have a joke, do you fail the course? (laughs) Well, you do fail the course, but by this time, you're so, you know, optimistic living on the precipice of a smile. It doesn't hurt so bad. No. (laughs) So for leaders in particular, why is a sense of humor so important? We know from the research that leaders with a sense of humor, any sense of humor, are seen as about 15% more motivating and admired. Their teams are more engaged and creative. Not only that, but humor sells. 
So there's one of our favorite studies where researchers ask people to come into the lab and do a negotiation. And what they find is when individuals add a lighthearted line at the end of a sales pitch, like, this is my final offer and I'll throw in my pet frog, that the recipient of that negotiation actually ends up wanting to spend nearly 20% more. And more than that, more than actually getting more money for that extraordinary lighthearted line, they also say that they enjoy the negotiation more. Mm. Now, let's really let it sink in just how bad that joke is. (laughs) I laughed. Carolyn giggled, but the bar is very low with her. Yeah, and Carolyn laughs at everything. She's already laughed 10 times. We've counted. It's true. It's true. It's so interesting that the example that you gave was like a sales negotiation. I always assumed like there are certain contexts with and like certain areas a leader should pull that out of their toolkit. Mm. Probably not in like some of the serious conversations about like, hey, we need to have a hard conversation about performance. So are there any like places where it's especially effective and places where it's like maybe here don't bring out the humor toolkit? So I love the example of, well, maybe if it's a really hard conversation, it's not the right time. (laughs) And there's this belief that gravity and levity are at odds, that if we take our mission seriously, the presence of humor betrays that mission. And we find that this is really not the case, that, that often it's when there's a lot of tension, when we're taking on really serious things, that humor can be most powerful. So one of the guests in our class was Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. And Secretary Albright told us about a time the Russian government had bugged the U.S. State Department, which is obviously a very serious breach in international diplomacy. Well, the first meeting after discovering the bugging, Secretary Albright walked in with an enormous bug pin, just (laughs) huge bug pin on her lapel. And so she looks at him, she looks down, you know, he looks at the pin, he looks at her. And in her words, she said he couldn't help but smile. And it shifted the tone of the conversation And she said that because of that, they were able to have a more open, a more productive conversation about a really serious topic. Now, of course, there are many times where humor is not appropriate. We have a whole chapter in the book about humor fails. So first and foremost, we tell our students, don't ask the question, will this make me sound funny? Instead, ask, how will this make other people feel? And that's a really powerful pulse to say, is this the right time for this humor? Am I doing it with the goal of uplifting or am I doing it because I want to ease my own tension or make myself look good? Yeah. The other thing about that is that it really encourages you to start reading the room and understanding who's in the room, you know, be it a Zoom room or an actual room, and also what are their own humor styles. And broadly, globally, people fall into like four styles. One of the styles is a stand-up. They're bold and brash, and they are not afraid to ruffle a few feathers to cross the line. Lindsay clearly is a stand-up, right? Proud of it. And then they're also the sweetheart, and they're earnest and understated and honest. Their real goal is to lift others. They would never, you know, cross the line. They're very aware of others. Then there is the sniper. They're edgy, sarcastic, dry, masters of the unexpected dig. So they, you know, will snipe in the in a meeting and bring the house down. Oftentimes, it's hard to get them to laugh. By the way, but when you do, you feel great. And then there's the magnet and they're a little bit more extroverted. They walk into a party, they're the life of the party. They're more a little physical, a little bit maybe silly. And each of these 
styles has upsides and downsides. But the thing that's so fascinating is once you understand your own style and then understand the style of others in the room, you can start to better navigate, not just, you know, from a communication perspective, but understand what actually would make that other person, you know, smile or uplift them, not what you think is funny. Do you find that like goes to like, like if you are a sweetheart, do you really struggle to communicate with a sniper? Or is it that like humor, no matter what your style is just so beneficial in the workplace? So understanding someone else's humor style goes a huge way in appreciating it, especially snipers and stand-ups, for example, when they tease you, it means that they like you. So snipers and stand-ups interpret teasing as a form of intimacy and building bonds with each other. Sweethearts and magnets don't initially interpret teasing that way. But as a magnet, once I know that you're a stand-up or you're a sniper, if you start teasing me, then I actually start to interpret that differently. And Mm -hmm. I can play along rather than take it quite so personally. And so that's what we find with our executive teams is they'll have their whole team take this humor styles quiz And it just knowing that someone else has a different style means that you're able to interpret their humor in the way that they intend. And what about people who maybe they just don't consider themselves funny or feel uncomfortable making jokes in an office setting? Is there an adjustment that they can make to get the benefits of humor in the workplace? Yeah. So as someone who I I never really thought of myself as humorous, and in fact, just to back my instincts up, In a recent survey of all of my family, they voted me the least funny person in the family after the dog. So no, also useful. Yeah. Okay. In in her defense, the dog is very funny. He is so (laughs) expletive funny. So I was very relieved to know that even though I do not view myself as humorous, that in fact, even if it's pretty subdued, oftentimes it's a sweetheart. Although when I was young, it was a sniper. And one thing that I personally have learned from all of our research is just being more generous with laughter becomes extraordinarily helpful toward this mindset of levity. In fact, Naomi and I will take ourselves off mute on any digital talk that we give just to enjoy a laugh together authentically. It really has a game-changing effect and there's no risk involved. I think also for people who don't feel like they are funny or can be funny, it is first and foremost about just being more human. So we know that we are operating at an incredible trust deficit in our world right now, in our leaders, in our institutions, in our businesses. In fact, in a recent HBR survey, people were asked, would you rather trust your boss or a stranger? And 58% of people said they would rather trust a stranger than their boss. Whoa. Yikes. Your listeners are all the 42%, so we're good. But this is really striking. And then in another survey, when people were asked... If you're not the 42%, we're going to have to ask you to get off the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Please don't come now. Right now. (laughs) Please. You need this the most, but I'm sorry, you can't have it. (laughs) And then in another survey, people were asked, okay, well, what traits inspire trust in a leader? And one of the top responses was speaks like a regular person. So if we're able to just be more human, have a bit less facade, bring more of ourselves to work, often that goes a really long way, more so even than having a joke to tell or showing a funny video. Mm -hmm. Are there differences 
that humor is actually perceived differently depending on who is delivering it. Absolutely. So one of the most important things to think about when you're talking about perceptions of humor is status. So we are so deeply wired to interpret someone's humor differently based on the status that we believe they hold. And so these studies have been done where they bring people into the lab and they have them listen to someone, say a a small speech that has a joke in it. If they pre-wire that person to believe that the joke teller is low status, they will not laugh. If they wire them to believe that they're high status, then they will laugh. So what this means is two things. One, as we rise in status in an organization, you know, we can no longer necessarily trust people's laughter as being an accurate barometer of what's funny. And number two, as we rise in status, our playing field also shifts because there's this concept in comedy of never punch down. And that means you never want to make fun of someone of lower status. What that means is what worked for you as a middle manager is not necessarily going to work for you when you are more senior. So I want to ask you both, what do you think are the most significant risks that we find especially women fall into when using humor? Oh, gosh. My instinct would be just that like humor can sometimes be used instead of credibility, that you're like using it as a crutch. And so like that there's a potential downfall of leaning too far into that, that like creates a risk of credibility Mm. when we know that in certain contexts, women are fighting for that credibility as being one of the only people in that space. Yeah, it's really easy if you can't punch down to self-punch and be Mm self-deprecating. And so if you're making yourself the butt of the joke, because you're, especially in a work setting, you don't want to make anybody else the butt of the joke, you really end up risking your own credibility based off of the jokes you're telling. And I think as a woman, there's just certain aspects of who we are that we may not want to put forth in public. So it's easy for me to make jokes about my kids, but I don't know if, do you need another reminder that I'm a mom? Do I need that reminder in another boardroom for for someone to be thinking of me as a mother and not as, you know, an, an incredibly dedicated business person? Mm-hmm. You're both exactly right. And you're getting at the single biggest risk that we tend to find women have, which is over-indexing on self-deprecation. And so self-deprecation, when we are in groups of other women, can be such a powerful way for us to bond with each other. When we are not the highest status person in the room and we self-deprecate, it can sometimes be misinterpreted as uh, genuine uh, lack of confidence. Once we are the most powerful person in the room, self-deprecation can actually be a superpower. So people will view those who can self-deprecate as being more confident, more competent. You know, hey, this person can take a joke and isn't afraid to, to make fun of themselves. So in general, sweethearts and magnet styles tend to over-index, but we find that women in particular tend to over-index on self-deprecation as well. I think the other issue that, as you mentioned, I think women are often labeled as brash right? Like that's a bad thing. It's bad to be brash. It's bad to speak out of line. I reject that, but I... (laughs) Brashly. (laughs) I brashly reject that. But I have been told by previous bosses that I need to listen more. I need to be less bold. And I know other women who are funny, who are vocal. And I think for a man, there are certain qualities that translate to confidence. But for women, 
those same qualities are often reinterpreted as being out of line or being, again, going back to this very gendered word of brash. You're absolutely right. And you're getting at the other, the two major ones, right? One is self-deprecation. The other is potentially coming across as uh, being too, quote, aggressive. And this is when you're over-indexing on the stand-up or sniper style in positions of leadership. And so what we tell people is as you rise in status, you want to lean more into that magnet and sweetheart style, which is going to uplift and bring people together. And for anyone in a leadership position, this is not just women, when you're the most powerful, highest status person in the room, you want to be really careful in your use of stand-up or sniper style humor because it can be interpreted as brash, as uh, hurting feelings. Yeah. I want to underscore what she just said. Like this, the data suggests that this happens to everyone in these high status positions, definitely not gendered effect. And one other thing to keep in mind, just from a practical perspective, is just checking your distance with what you're making fun of. Like, you know, I can make fun of my mom, but not, you know, Carolyn's mom. And so that idea that just checking your distance. And if you are too far away from what you're making fun of, then don't do it. Just steer clear. I love the idea of the more senior you get, the more you should move into some of these other humor styles. But humor is actually hard to attain for many people, let alone being able to move from one style to the other very easily. So how do you coach people into some of those transitions? Are there any like tips or tricks that are are helpful for people? Yeah. So one thing we do on day one of the class is a humor audit, which is the most fun audit you've ever taken. Uh, So just over the course of that first week, especially, they just take note of when they laughed or made someone else laugh. Inevitably, the first week is horrifying. Like one of our (laughs) students said, I didn't laugh all day Tuesday. Who knew this class could be so depressing? So, you know, there's definitely a low watermark. But then over time, they really do experience a profound shift. So it's much more than being funny. It's just becoming more generous with their laughter and looking for these opportunities to see truth. So the first thing is just noticing what's true in our lives. Again, Jennifer said, often if we're if we're trying to look for humor, we'll look around our lives and say, okay, what's funny in my life? And that's not what we want to do. We actually just want to notice these small observations. So things that we find interesting or odd or a little bit incongruous. So things like since uh, working from home, I only comb the front part of my hair. It's true. She really, <laughs> I've seen the back part. It's not pretty. At least it's the front. I mean, a lot of people, it's <laughs> neither. <laughs> <laughs> and then you can use a few techniques from the world of comedy. So you could create exaggeration. You could use the rule of three, which is where you make a really simple list. And the last item of the list is a bit unexpected. So uh, an example of rule of three is when Amy Schumer opened one of her comedy shows with, I'm so grateful you're here. I don't know if y'all know this, but this last year I've gotten very rich, famous, and humble, right? So she goes sort of apple, apple, and then takes it in a different direction. So those are a couple techniques. But the, the most important thing that we have our students do is just write down these observations. And what we find, as Jennifer mentioned, is day one, it's really hard. And then by week 10, they're like going throughout their day and they can't get 10 minutes without noticing something that's a little weird or quirky or absurd. And so it's just looking through our day for what are these little incongruities. Then just using them in these small little ways, like one thing that's been nothing short 
of life changing for me is just the way I sign off my emails. I used to be a very, you know, hardcore best person. I thought that was like, you know, a, a reasonable way of signing off, a very sure. positive way. But if you think about it, you know, why am I saying that? Like, am I the best? You know, are you the best? Like best in many ways <laughs> is the worst. And so, but, you know, all you do is just go, you know, something like if you've been up all night, you know, you say yours heavily caffeinated or when it's the last email of a thread that's gone on way too long, like let's never speak of this again. Or Naomi sometimes likes to sign off like I'm the best because sometimes you just got to let people know. Sometimes you just have to be clear. If you're going to say it, own it, you know? I love that. Little PSs too. They're just so easy, but really it does have this extraordinary impact because it's just about like calling back something that like, that was referenced in an earlier email string or a conversation and the person feels seen. And it's like a little, it's like getting someone a little treat. You'll like Mm. it, Carolyn. Yes. Your life will be changed. I mean, (laughs) Carolyn's pretty funny. Thanks, Lindsay. You know what? Let's (laughs) cut that from the final edit. (laughs) Cut it from the final edit. So if you could suggest someone do just one thing today to improve their humor or levity on their team, what would you suggest? Well, we've already given you one, which is go through the day and write down moments that you laughed. So that's, I'm going to give you a level two, which is think about a moment of shared laughter with someone on your team and think about a very specific moment and then text them about that moment. And you can blame it on us. You can say, I'm listening to this awesome podcast, probably the best podcast that hits the airwaves. Definitely the best. (laughs) And, um, and these two, you know, nutty Stanford people are making me do this, but think about a moment of shared laughter and text that person about it. And then just go back and forth reminiscing about that moment. And the reason that this is so small, but powerful is, so there's a, there was a research study done where researchers had couples reminisce about moments that they'd had together. And some of the couples were asked to reminisce about happy moments. Some were asked to reminisce about moments of shared laughter. And what they found was that those in the shared laughter condition later reported being 23% more satisfied in their relationships than those in the happiness condition. And so these moments of shared laughter that are already happening organically, we don't have to go out of our way to create them, are such a powerful way for us to feel more connected and feel more satisfied in the relationships that we have. So that would be my one tip for everyone to do today. It's really important to know you get a quarter more satisfied in your relationship based on remembering one moment of shared laughter. It makes sense. It's like coming out of a meeting and having documentation that it happened, right? Like if you memorialize it, it is imprinted more in your brain and people will think you're funnier, Carolyn. (laughs) (laughs) Carolyn, specifically. And just like that, a simple thing of laughing together, it makes us feel more connected. So neurologically, what's happening is when we laugh together, it just, it floods our brains with hormones associated with love, like dopamine, also endorphins, like the same feeling you get with exercising. And it also lowers your cortisol at the same time. So it has this extraordinary impact of being just like exercising, meditating, and, you know, having sex at the same time. Well, this conversation, especially the parts where Lindsay finally admitted that I was funny, has been wonderful. Uh, (laughs) But uh, we want to close with a question that we ask all of our guests. So we'd love to hear from both of you. What is the best piece of leadership advice that you have ever gotten? 
It's such a good question. I think one is simply leadership is taking people to where they don't want to go and making them feel valued along the way. Hmm. Oh, gosh. From Tina Fey, do your thing and don't care if they like it. I love it. Thank you both so much for joining us, Naomi, Jennifer. This was so much fun and great leadership takeaways. Loved it. Thank you. Loved being here with you. And we love what you've built. It's such an incredibly special, powerful community unlike anything else. We just are in love with you all and what you've built. Thank you. That was Naomi Bagdonis and Jennifer Ocker, Stanford professors and co-authors of Humor Seriously. That was so fun. It really was. Humor can feel so daunting. Like there's already so much I'm supposed to do as a leader. And now you want me to be funny too. But it's really great how much even something small can do. Just starting with a smile, a little bit of levity. Just smile more, Carolyn. (laughs) But especially if we focus on other people's smiles. We should be reading the room and serving the audience rather than looking for that perfect joke. And I loved their perspective on making sure to center other people's humor styles. And modifying yours to make sure everyone feels in on the joke, especially when you're the authority figure in the room. Yes. And crucially, that phrase Naomi used, don't punch down. You have to wield your humor carefully when you're a leader. And that goes for wielding it on yourself too. If you overdo it with self-deprecation, you may impact your own credibility. And Linz, I think this also may have been a little bit of relationship therapy for us. Mm -hmm. I guess all I need to do is send you a text with some happy memories and you will like me so much more. No shit, Carolyn. That's why I'm always texting you. I am really bad at responding to texts. I know. I know you are. (laughs) That's all for this episode of The New Rules of Business by Chief. You can find us on LinkedIn or if you're interested in joining the Chief Network, apply to be a member at chief.com. Thanks to Sharon Yee, Courtney Conley, Katrina Conan and Rial, Blaine Edens, and Gabriella Margarino at Chief. And to our production team pod people, Rachel King, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Andy Bosnack, Madison Lesby, Michelle O'Brien, and Veronica Simonetti. Our music is by Colin Hatch. I'm Carolyn Childers. And I'm Lindsay Kaplan. Thanks for listening. 